0: Deaths to COVID-19 hit an all-time high last week, taking more lives in one day than were killed during the terrorist attacks on 9-11. The UK authorized the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for use, clearing the path for imminent approval here in the US. An advisory panel to the CDC voted to deploy the first vaccines to frontline healthcare workers and residents of long-term care facilities. President-elect Joe Biden plans to call for 100 days of masks to stem the spread of COVID-19 as he takes office. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. We are officially in the thick of this pandemic. The average number of deaths per day over the past week was 2,010. And on Thursday, more than 3,100 people died of COVID-19, more than the number of people who died on 9-11. Across the country, hospitals are full or filling quickly, putting an unheard of amount of pressure on clinicians trying to keep their patients alive.
1: For the first time, America's hospitals now treat more than 100,000 COVID
0: patients. This is forcing states across the country to make hard decisions. Facing surging cases in California, Governor Gavin Newsom announced a county-level policy that would trigger county-wide lockdowns if over 85% of ICU beds in the county were full. Today,
1: we are announcing uh, and introducing a regional stay-at-home order in the state of California, fundamentally predicated on the need to stop gathering with people outside of your household.
0: But that's one governor in one of America's 50 states. On the flip side, South Dakota has one of the country's highest rates of COVID-19 transmission. And yet, here's South Dakota's governor, Kristi Noem, in a state tourism ad launched in September. We're open for opportunity, and always will be. I'm Governor Kristi Noem. Celebrate what makes America great, and experience the great faces and great places of South Dakota. All of this highlights the fact that there simply hasn't been strong federal leadership on the pandemic since its earliest days. And that's forced government leaders to act to protect their states. And all of this is occurring in the frankly farcical political environment Donald Trump has created, denying and downplaying the seriousness of the pandemic, delaying the transition to President-elect Joe Biden's time in office by denying the fact that he lost an election and forcing politicians to take sides. Politicians like Noam in South Dakota, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Ron DeSantis in Florida, all of them have systematically opposed the evidence-driven approach to protecting people in their states, lest they face the ire of Donald Trump's Twitter attacks. But even for states where governors are choosing to stand up and protect their states, leaders like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Michelle Lujan Grisham in New Mexico, and Gavin Newsom in California, there's still not enough guidance or support from the federal government. And that's hitting a tipping point right now, when there is still no real guidance from the federal government about when to or how to lock down should case transmission require it, and perhaps even more urgently, the process for deploying vaccines. To be fair, through Operation Warp Speed, The federal government has tasked deployment logistics to the military, which is probably the most capable logistics organization in the world. But that's about deploying the vaccine out to the states. When it comes to what happens within the states, the government is leaving it to already overworked state health departments without much guidance or support in terms of funding. This was Pennsylvania Health Secretary Rachel Levine on NPR last week. We have confidence in them, but I'm sure it'll be a significant logistical challenge. This has to occur throughout the United States, all at the same time, to all of the states, the territories, and then some specific large cities. And besides, creating a vaccination is a complex undertaking. There's a scientific component, a logistical component, and a cultural component. The scientific component, to get to the existence of a safe and effective vaccine, it's just the first part will be there soon, if and when the FDA issues an emergency use authorization in the coming weeks. Next comes the logistical component, getting those vaccines out into the community hospitals, clinics, drugstores, and social service organizations that'll deploy it. The third component is the cultural one, that enough people trust the vaccine to even take it. This may be the most important part of all, because the existence of a vaccine only matters if people take it. In a recent Gallup poll, only 58% of Americans said they would take the vaccine. And that's up from 50% in September, but it's well below the 70% we need to achieve a return to a time when we didn't really have to think about the virus in our day-to-day lives. That means there's a lot more work that we need to do to build support for the vaccine, explaining to people why it's critical that they take it, how it works, about the process that led us here. And this cultural work, it's most important in the communities that have been hit hardest by the pandemic, black and brown communities where there's a terrible legacy of abuse at the hands of the biomedical establishment, This includes atrocities like the Tuskegee syphilis study, where long after we knew how to treat syphilis, poor black farmers were allowed to live with the disease so that scientists could study how it affected them. That includes the experimentation that Dr. J. Marion Sims performed on enslaved women without their consent, and the harvesting and replication of the cells of Henrietta Lacks, a poor black woman in Baltimore without her permission. All of this means more work for state health departments. After all, A recent poll suggests that state officials are some of the most trusted sources for COVID-19 information, but they remain some of the most overworked and underfunded. We talked to Michael Frazier, the Executive Director of the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, the umbrella organization that advocates on behalf of state health department leaders about what that means going forward. After the break. All right. My guest today is Michael Frazier. He is the chief executive officer of ASTO, which is the organization that represents state, local, and territorial health departments. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today.
1: You bet. Glad to be with you.
0: So I know that state health directors and, and health departments have gotten a, a lot of attention in the pandemic, but I'm hoping we can step back for a second and just talk a little bit about what state health departments are responsible for, aside from Uh, or outside of uh, this particular moment in this particular pandemic?
1: Well, every state and territory has a Department of Health. They're all a little bit different. They all have their sort of local flavor and geography sort of tailored for them. I think it's important that everybody knows a lot of what we're doing in COVID is what we do all the time. We're just doing a lot more of it. State health departments do a core set of communicable disease control and disease investigation activities that COVID just brought to scale. I mean, um, a lot of what states do is investigate STD outbreaks, foodborne illness outbreaks. They're the ones that hire the epidemiologists to do some of that investigation and partner with, with local health departments and others. But in addition to communicable disease control, which a lot of people are learning about through covid health departments do chronic disease control. They work across the state to promote you know, healthy lifestyles in terms of exercise and physical activity, injury prevention. And they also address the social determinants of health, which is a, a lot of people may not think about, which is they take an approach to health that says, it's not just whether or not you can go see a physician and whether you have access to care, but also where you live and what your community is built like, and some of those factors that influence health. So they do they do a lot of stuff, and you know, of course, there's always you can go get your birth certificate if you need it, or your immunization record if you need it. That's always uh, something that folks go to the health departments for too.
0: And obviously, states are this incredible connective tissue, right? Because our country, our, our government is is quite federated. You have you have the federal government, and that's what everybody sort of pays attention to as quote unquote, the government. But then you also have state governments. And then below that you have city and county government and state health departments are this sort of connective tissue between the federal government and and, and local government. Can you talk about how state health departments usually interact with uh, the federal government and local government and maybe how that's changed in the circumstance of of COVID-19?
1: Sure. I like the idea of connected tissue or glue. You know, they hold the system together. States can also be the sandwich, you know, the meat and the sandwich between the bread, the, the local and the, and the federal level. Again, health, by and large, is a state responsibility if you look at, you know, how, the, how our country was, was formed and what the responsibilities are, the federal government and the Constitution. The federal government pays for a lot of health, but health policy is really directed mostly by states. I mean, obvious exceptions include some of the big federal health programs Usually, there's a pretty strong collaboration between federal health agencies and state health departments, and there's a really strong collaboration between state health departments and local health departments. You know, what we've learned in COVID is we all have to work together and row in the same direction. And, you know, that's been the challenge, which is where federal decision-making didn't always include states states had to make decisions uh, in a vacuum or, or lack of information based on what was happening in the federal government. That's that's unusual. That's not where we usually find ourselves in uh, other kinds of public health emergencies.
0: Mm. And how have states uh, risen to the challenge uh, when it comes to battling COVID-19?
1: I mean, I I can't tell you how tired everybody is. <laughs> risen to the challenge, I mean, by really tapping all reserves in terms of workforce in terms of partnerships in terms of community collaborations you know they've risen to the challenge in the sense that a lot of the guidance that would typically come from federal agencies like CDC was either something that wasn't developed or took a while to develop and states had to had to begin to make decisions without that you know we saw Ohio for example decide to close schools a day before federal guidance on school closures came out, you know that was a that was a big deal. That was, a, you know, usually that's a little out of sync, but there was an urgent need to to do something, especially early in the pandemic. You know, similarly, the states have risen to the challenge to really have to make some lemonade out of the lemons they've been dealt when it comes to some policy decisions by the federal government that you know states were part of and, and are left you know to implement. Most recently, we're in the process of figuring out how to get a limited quantity of monoclonal antibody treatments to hospital settings in states. I mean, nobody wants to spend their time doing that. These are public health departments that really need to focus on prevention. So states have risen to the challenge. I mean, I think the other thing we have to to discuss is what's not getting done. And some of the core public health, opioid prevention, overdose prevention, STD investigation and control maternal and child health activities, those are definitely important and need to be sustained. And I think some health departments had to put uh, those staff on the COVID response.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate you uh, mentioning that because there are a couple of challenges that state health departments, frankly, across the board have had to handle. Number one is the fact that there are some things that state governments cannot do. So, you know, organizing an international supply chain, for example, is not something that a state government usually has the capacity to do. Second, state health departments have faced funding cuts across the board that are pretty drastic over the past 20 years as we've dealt with both economic downturn and then also just you know ideological opposition to some of these sort of government agencies. And then lastly, like you said, there are other challenges that are still ongoing that actually get worse in the moment of COVID-19, but you're so stuck focusing on the acute issue uh, of the pandemic that you can't take on those other issues in the same way. Can you talk about how health departments have innovated and really rethought their organization and, like you said, made, made lemonade out of lemons to try and handle and deal with some of these challenges?
1: Well, I think where the innovation has been the most important for state health departments is in in two fronts. One is in the workforce. The biggest thing health departments have are their people, their teams that do this work and technology. And I would say in terms of innovation around COVID, you know, we've seen particularly around disease investigation lots of different approaches to doing the work of case investigation and contact tracing and care management or case management of folks who may be isolating or in quarantine. And lots of either further established partnerships or new partnerships with social services and others that can support people that have to isolate or quarantine. So we've seen a lot of innovation in workforce. Who's doing contact tracing? Is uh, We've seen innovation in models for that where we've had you know, in some places, medical students, in some places we've had the National Guard, in some places we've had trained disease investigation specialists, and everyone's trying to figure out the right mix there. And on the technology front, we've seen some pretty interesting innovations around apps and, you know, uh, iPhone applications or, or Google Android applications for folks to monitor their own symptoms, to report how they're doing back to the health department, so they don't need to get a phone call, for example. So there's been some really interesting innovation there. There's there's a lot more to do. And innovation comes from this lack. You talk about the lack of resources comes from this lack of having enough. So everybody's kind of figuring out the right way or the new way or a potential way to solve the problems in front of them.
0: Mm. I'm drawn by the fact that Public health professionals are, uh, I think, and you know maybe I'm just biased, the unsung heroes uh, of our society, whether you're in the middle of a pandemic or you're not. And this has been a particularly rough time for public health professionals. Can you talk a little bit about some of the strain uh, that whether it's leaders at the very top or folks uh, who are operating in you know in inside of health departments, some of the strain that they faced and what the consequences have been?
1: You bet. I agree with you. They are the unsung heroes. And interesting, we do have some sung heroes. We've got some health officials that have become celebrities in their own states, which is great to see. Most people didn't know who their health officer was until COVID. But I think we've seen, unfortunately, some pretty significant isolated but significant cases where health officials have been threatened by members of the public, have been harassed, by political leadership is it you know in, in state houses as well as by the general public where we have state health officers who have police protection to go walk their dog wow. i mean these are you know examples i never would have imagined and the same is true for local health officials so i think there's that very acute situation that we see with with health officials being harassed and it's led to the departure of some of our members which have a short tenure anyway i mean health officials on average serve two or three years um, that's for lots of reasons in typical times so that's unfortunate and we really are concerned about that i think the bigger issue though and we're going to see this in healthcare workers as well as public health workers is burnout, is fatigue, is pandemic fatigue. Uh, and that's all because we have not invested in a system that has a capacity to surge for this duration. And we haven't really figured out again how can we meet the needs we're seeing, you know, the demand for healthcare. You look at what's happening in hospitals now. Same is true in health departments. There's there's not enough capacity to do the, the job they need to do. So they have to make tough choices. So I think there's burnout resilience issues, there's the harassment issues. And on any given day pre-COVID, like, like you said, most people wouldn't know what their health department does, but it intimately impacts all our lives every day in terms of the environments in which we live and the roads on which we drive and, the, you know, vehicles that we use and the, all of those things are part of public health. COVID has brought that all to the fore. Some people have really lauded public health. Some people, unfortunately, have targeted public health.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated the way that you talked about we have not invested in a system that can surge, and you know in, and that's the point is that it's not that any system would have failed. It's that the system that we chose to create through a series of disinvestments over time has led to this moment where you're watching heroic efforts on the part of people who work in it, and it's still you know it's still sometimes not enough. Coming out of COVID-19, what do you hope the lesson is for both what we need from the federal government? And then also how we need to invest in state public health so that when we say we never want to be here again, we mean it.
1: That's a great question and something that we we are thinking about now. And, you know, it's, it's the only fun in my day is envisioning a day when we don't have COVID and we can think mm-hmm. about what that would look like. I think all of us are at that point. I think what we need from the federal government and what's been encouraging about the conversations we've had with the Biden-Harris transition team has been this recognition that states have a point of view and need to be actively consulted. And this response, I mean, in any other major public health emergency, there's been very clear... Predecisional deliberative engagement of state health officials and others in in policymaking and program implementation that just really hasn't happened. So we need that back, and folks understand the need for that, and 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 we'll get there. I am confident. Another thing that can come out of this is again this renewed attention to we just do not have a 21st century public health infrastructure. Public health doesn't have ways to report data efficiently. We still have fax machines. I mean, one of our health officials likes to joke his state's probably keeping the entire fax industry alive you know, because <laughs> of all the faxes that they use and receive uh, between physicians and nursing homes and the state health department. That's ridiculous. It's almost 2021 and folks are faxing health data you know, the way they did in 1980, whatever it was. So uh, it's people, it's information, technology. What I really hope comes out of this is folks have a new appreciation for the work of prevention. I mean, that that would be the best case scenario. We we have to get a vaccine. We have to spend, you know, the ten billion dollars to develop that vaccine. But you have to appreciate what it means to turn that vaccine into vaccination that, you know, what we call the last inch problem. Getting that syringe into an arm is done uh, in a clinical setting, but public health has a huge role there. And um, we just again, we haven't prioritized that. We we don't see that. We don't see the work of public health. And we don't know what we're buying when we invest in it. A lot of people have questions about that. We all have the experience of going to a you know a healthcare clinic and a clinical encounter, but not everybody has the experience of being in their health department or knowing what the health department does. So I'm really hoping that at, at the end of this, we can see some significant investment in public health capacity building, not a specific silo. We got $10.25 billion, for example, which is huge, doubles the CDC budget, the biggest investment in public health as part of COVID, specifically for epidemiology and laboratory capacity building. That's amazing. What are we going to do with that to build the public health system? Let's not create just a, a siloed program. Let's use those resources to think about the system we need to have across the state and, and with
0: local partners. mm mm-hmm. That is an important call to action because I think um, we've got to recognize that public health is that good, that service that you really want to have there, even when you don't know what you're fighting against. Because at its best, it works in the background and it's not flashy. And you know, the, the hard part is that people only really pay attention to public health when it's not working the way it's supposed to. You know, The point that I always try and make about these things is that a virus is naturally occurring. There's nothing that, very little that you can do to stop it from occurring. But a pandemic is a function of a set of human decisions, both in history and in a moment that allows a virus to turn into to something like this. And so we have a choice about whether or not we want to build a competent, well-funded uh, public health system that operates in the background and keeps us healthy. You know, it's it's kind of like an air conditioner or a heater, right? You don't really know that it's there and, until until it's Broken, and then at that point you're realizing that that you really wished you would have uh, invested in it. How are you spending your days? I'm sure it hasn't been you know sunshine and lollipops for you, but uh, can you tell us a little (laughs) bit about what the experience has been?
1: Well, you bet. I mean, a lot of what we do at ASTO is convene and connect with states, and so you know, for example, we have um, right now twice weekly all state calls. So we do a lot of connecting and convening our state health official members so they can learn from each other. So they can talk about what they're hearing and what they need. And then we, we advocate for them in Washington and we share those issues with the federal agencies that they work with. So yeah, especially now I spend a lot of time on Zoom and conference calls, but who's on those calls are our state health officials and our staff who are supporting them uh, and working with federal agencies to get dates the information they need to respond effectively. I can tell you, you know, the the rhythm has increased with the vaccine news, and you know, I think it's going to be uh, vaccine, you know, all day, all night for the foreseeable future in terms of its distribution and its efficacy and who's going to get it, what the priorities are, and what the challenges of that are. I think most health officials would agree that that's what they're doing today. Six weeks ago it was testing, it was rapid testing and how to use them and what's the purpose of an antigen test and what populations should get them Six months ago it was what do we know about masks and, and face coverings and mitigation. So you know, it's very reactive. That's how this thing has unfolded. and you know again, I spend a lot of my day looking to connect states so that we do have a consistent across state approach that we can promote the the health officers talking to each other. making good decisions together and learning from each other and that's the value we add we're not a health department we work with health departments we work for health directors the best part of my day is when i have the chance to to talk to to our health officials because they're doing some pretty important work and we uh had just this morning had a one of our health officials from maine on cnn and you know that had been an aspiration of mine a year ago and now it's almost getting routine at this point so it's you know it's it's just been um you know in many ways uh, it's a privilege, it's, it's really an honor to serve these state health officials who just have thankless jobs and are, are really trying at a, at a very, you know, significant way to respond to this pandemic and also to address, you know, one thing we didn't talk a lot about was equity and address the fact that there are people that are left behind in this pandemic and the only people really thinking about them at this point are public health or the communities themselves and really promoting those conversations into the future.
0: And I deeply appreciate uh, that reminder, and we appreciate your work, and, um, and we're grateful that you take some time out of your busy day to uh, share your insights about, about state public health and what, where, where we go from here. And that was Mike Frazier. He's the CEO of Asto, uh, the organization that represents state, local, and territorial health departments uh, across our country. Uh, Mike, thank you again. Thank you. It's a pleasure. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. As cases continue to spike, President-elect Biden is putting together the team that will tackle the pandemic. California Attorney General Javier Becerra was nominated to lead the Health and Human Services Department, former Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy was nominated for Surgeon General, and infectious disease physician and researcher Dr. Rochelle Walensky was tapped to lead the CDC. Jeffrey Zients, who helped rescue healthcare.gov in the Obama administration, was tapped to lead the White House COVID response. And perhaps most importantly, President-elect Biden has named Dr. Marcela Nuñez Smith, a health equity expert, to lead the COVID-19 Equity Task Force, a critical investment in addressing the circumstances that led to such unequal impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. Rarely will more have been riding on a set of people than this group, and the folks he's chosen are leading scientists, public health professionals, and government operatives, people with experience leading in some of the hardest public health circumstances in the world. At the end of this month, nearly 30 million people will lose their COVID-19 relief benefits. Over the weekend, congressional leaders hammered out a compromised $900 billion relief bill. To be sure, that bill doesn't go nearly far enough, as it doesn't even include putting relief checks in struggling Americans' pockets. But I worry about what no package would mean for millions who are at the very edge of poverty, and millions more who've been pushed further into it. Which reminds us that beyond the pandemic, the Biden administration will need to take on the challenges that created these inequities in the first place. A broken healthcare system, a vastly unequal economy, and decimated public health and government institutions. So much of that requires him to have a legislative majority in the Senate, and that boils down to the two runoffs in Georgia. Here at Crooked Media, we're organizing to support Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff to win back the Senate and to be able to enact those critical reforms. Go to votesaveamerica.com to learn more about how you can help. And since holiday shopping is full swing, I'd love to announce that you can go check out your America Dissected merch at the Crooked store, but we sold out. I hope that you'll keep checking because we'll have more soon. Over the holidays, we'll be doing a mailbag episode on mental health with psychiatrist Dr. Sara Jukaku, who also happens to be my partner and best friend. You can send any questions you might have to americadissected at crooked.com. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Alison Falzetta. The theme song is by Take Asuzawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismar and me, Dr. Abdul al sayed your host. Thanks for listening.